Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to this special midweek episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's extra episode, I'm pleased to present to you a speech I recently gave to the annual meeting of the Evangelical Press Association in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The title of the speech is How Journalism Can Save Evangelicalism, and it was delivered to a group of writers, editors, designers, graphic artists, and others associated with Christian publications all around the United States. This speech outlines why we do what we do here at Ministry Watch, and I hope it will be both a challenge and an encouragement to you today. If you've been paying any attention to the news and your journalists and writers and storytellers, so I know you likely have been, uh, I don't need to tell you that many of the institutions of civil society are in disrepair. In fact, it's distressingly easy uh, to find examples of this disrepair even in evangelical circles. Uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church, Bill Hybels and Willow Creek, Bill Gothard, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, Jerry Falwell and Liberty University, the list kind of goes on. In every case that I just mentioned, though, neither the government nor the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, nor denominations, nor even the boards of these ministries brought these stories out into the open, provided any level of accountability. Indeed, these institutions, these organizations that I just mentioned, often were either absent or in some cases arguably complicit in the wrong doing. Instead, it was Christian journalists who played a key role in each of these stories. In fact, as I hope to explain as we go on in my presentation today, journalism ended up not only playing a role, but being absolutely vital, essential, in part because one of the pathologies of the evangelical church today is that it is no longer able to police itself with anything resembling biblical structures of church polity. And again, that's why I think journalism plays such an important role. It's also worth noting as we begin our uh, role or our discussion on the role that journalism can play in reforming the church that it is almost exactly 20 years ago this week that in the late winter and early spring of 2002, that the Boston Globe's Spotlight team published its Pulitzer Prize-winning series of stories on the Boston area's clergy sex scandal. If you've seen the movie or, or know anything about that series, you know that it was, uh, in some ways, did for religious journalism what Woodward and Bernstein did for political journalism a generation earlier. The Spotlight team helped the world see that journalism about religion really does matter, that journalism can provide a voice for victims, that journalism still has the ability to speak truth to power and more than speak, to be heard and um, compel those powers to give an account for their actions. Now, we Protestants should not get self-righteous about the clergy sex scandal in the Catholic Church. A couple of years ago came a scandal to the Protestant Church with distressing echoes of the Catholic clergy sex scandal. It was revealed by the Houston Chronicle 
about the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest evangelical denomination. Literally hundreds of perpetrators, some of them men in high positions in the denomination, and possibly thousands of victims, and that was in Texas alone. Once again, the institution proved incapable of disciplining itself, and once again, journalists played a vital role in the bringing that scandal to light. And I should also add that there are scores, perhaps hundreds, of lesser scandals, wrongdoing that are petty by comparison to the ones that we've just mentioned, but nonetheless tragic in their consequence, leaving a toll on the victims of these scandals and continuing the slow erosion of the credibility of the church. And in fact, uh, public opinion surveys recently have actually quantified this erosion in credibility. According to a recent study that we reported on at Ministry Watch done by the independent sector, trust is declining for nonprofits and philanthropic organizations generally, but most especially for Christian organizations. Only 4% of respondents said that they currently trust major philanthropic institutions and foundations. That was down from 15% just the year before. And in fact, a 2021 Gallup poll said that just 37% of Americans had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in religious institutions. That's down 5% in one year. Journalism fares even worse, I'm sad to say. The same Gallup poll that I mentioned a moment ago found that just 21% had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers. For TV journalism, the number was even worse. It was 16%. Of the 16 institutions Gallup asked about, only the United States Congress had lower scores. Think about that for a moment. If you've been working in journalism for very long, uh, these data points are likely not news to you. In fact, the low esteem which many people hold journalism has caused many to give up on the craft. Uh, they say that journalism is part of the problem. More than that, they sometimes say that journalism is the source of the problem. And it's not hard to find evidence for this conclusion. Fake news, cable news punditry, and well-financed disinformation campaigns masquerade as journalism so convincingly that we have come to believe that it is, in fact, journalism. But, and this is a key part of my presentation today, a key assertion, I guess you could say, I stand before you here to say that I don't believe that that is true journalism or that true journalism is the problem. I believe, in fact, that journalism can be part of the solution for many of the cultural problems we face, especially many of the problems in the evangelical church. The role that journalism played in the uncovering of the scandals that I have already mentioned is, of course, a part of the case that I make today. But I think it's also important for us to dig just a little bit deeper into the current cultural malaise and try to find its source and ask ourselves who or what is really to blame, if not journalism. Now, first, I think it's important to acknowledge that we have undergone a massive technological revolution in the past 30 years, especially as it relates to communication, the Internet, cell phones, email. And in a single year, 2007, we saw the advent of the iPhone, Facebook, and Twitter. One year. 
The way we communicated with, with each other changed in 2007. And the way we got our news and who we trusted, our very language changed. We don't search for information, we Google. We don't ask friends or trusted advisors for help, we crowdsource a problem. But this transformation of language runs deeper than that. Words like family and marriage and liberty and love have taken on entirely new meanings. Meanings that would have been unrecognizable to anyone on either the political left or the right, religious or secular, as recently as a generation ago. And if you will indulge me to give you just one example, I'm sure many of you have seen this meme, this expression all over social media, love is love is love. However, I would submit to you that my love for my wife is different than my love for my children, which is different a little than my wife's love for our dog, which is, I don't know, maybe it's not that different, different than my love for Briar's vanilla bean ice cream and salt and vinegar potato chips. Can I get a witness for that? These loves are different. I don't think any rational thinking person would say that that's not so. We can, just as a matter of common sense, as a verifiable fact, we know these loves are different. And yet, the meme says love is love is love. And if we push up back against that, we are either intolerant or homophobic or, and if we're silent, we're either acknowledging that this is true or at least complicit in what we can verifiably say is a lie. And in fact, in the Christian tradition, we've known this for a long time, right? That's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Four Loves, to help us understand that love is not love, is not love, is not love. But this is just kind of one example of how media, social media in particular, can just can not only change the meaning of words, but change the way that we think about vital, fundamental, cultural, philosophical, theological, ontological principles. So this transformation in language should cause deep concern for those of us in this room, those of us who make our living using language, and hope to practice our vocation in a way that brings glory to God. In other words, those of us who know that one of the first jobs God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden was to name the animals. In other words, what we call things really does matter. To say it succinctly, words matter. Using the right word or the wrong word is not just an issue of clear or less clear communication. The way we use language is an exercise of theology. The way we use language is both informed by and a testimony of our worldview, of our religious faith, of our Christian faith, I would say. So these disruptions have economic consequences, of course, but I would say the most significant consequences have not been merely or even primarily economic in nature. As I have already suggested, and most of us can plainly see, they also have caused a kind of cultural vertigo. We're off-balanced. We're uncertain. The temptation to fear is strong. But fear should not be the response of Christians to chaotic times. It should be love. As Scripture tells us, perfect love drives out fear. 
Not hate. Fear is the true opposite of love. When we live in an environment of fear, love, in fact, is often the first casualty. The temptation is to relieve our fear by retreating into comfortable tribes or around the flags of leaders who speak to our fears and appear to know what they are doing. This temptation is strong even for Christians who should be known by fear's opposite, love, and who are repeatedly told by Scripture to fear not. In fact, I've been told that that's the most common commandment in Scripture is be not afraid, fear not. But many people who claim to be Christians live by fear as well and not by love. And that fear drives us toward tribes and demagogues who share our fear. That retreat to tribes and demagogues ends up making us not less fearful, but we are at least no longer alone in our fear and anger. In fact, often our fear and anger gets fed. So fear destroys love. It also destroys truth. Fear causes us to bear false witness about the world. That great birthright we have as humans that I just mentioned a moment ago, the calling by God to name the animals begins to go awry. All of the animals in the garden begin to look like predators to us or scapegoats. We call fellow human beings those image bearers who God loves, the enemy, the source of our fear, the object of our anger. Now, this temptation to look for scapegoats leads us to mislabel institutions as well. Journalism has become a convenient target. And journalism, as I've already noted, is not completely blameless. Many of the wounds that journalism is now experiencing, the economic and reputational wounds that I've already mentioned, are well-deserved and even in some cases self-inflicted. Indeed, Marvin Olasky wrote a book some years ago called Prodigal Press, which I had the opportunity to revise with him just a few years ago on this very topic. But I think it's also important that we separate the craft, the vocation of journalism, from those who practice that craft poorly or irresponsibly or maliciously. We can agree that journalism, when practiced badly, can and does have a corrosive impact on the world. Bearing false witness in any form is a great evil. But I would assert with equal vigor that bearing true witness is a great societal and cultural good. And I think that we can now see that it is a great spiritual good as well. Telling the truth is an act of love that drives out all fear. Now, I've seen this in my own reporting. When I wrote about the scandal at Mars Hill Church, or brought to light misleading fundraising claims at the Bible translation organization Wycliffe Associates, or exposed concerns about sexual abuse concerning Bill Gothard, the resignations of key leaders in those organizations quickly followed. In the case of Mars Hill, the entire organization eventually disappeared. But more gratifying to me were the emails and phone calls from people who simply said, thank you. Thank you. For the first time in my life, I felt like I've been heard. For the first time, something is happening that feels like justice. So let me say it again. Telling the truth is an act of love. 
When we as journalists look out at the world and rightly name the animals in the garden, rightly name what we see, we are doing nothing less than fulfilling that great commandment that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And when we do so, even when we are naming the brokenness of the world, we are fulfilling what the novelist and medical doctor, Walker Percy, called a diagnostic role. And in being a responsible diagnostician as journalists, we are participating with God in the repairing, the restoration of his beautiful but broken world. I will admit, though, that some of the things I have said sound more like assertions than a full, robust, and complete argument. So let me summon a few witnesses to the stand, if you'll allow me, uh, both from Scripture and from history, in order to maybe make my case a little more fully. First, from Scripture. Standing on the firm foundation of Genesis 2 to name the animals and the Ten Commandments, not the bare false witness, I would build on those arguments from the life of Jesus himself, who used storytelling as a key strategy. Mark 4.34, in fact, says Jesus did not speak to them except in parables, except in stories. Revelation 1.11 begins with an explicitly journalistic instruction from Jesus himself to John the Revelator. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Sounds like he was more of a journalist than a theologian in that particular moment. And of course, we have the example of the Bible itself. The book of Numbers and Judges might be thought of as exercises in data journalism. Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew, if any of you know the songwriter Andrew Peterson's song, Matthew's Begats, it's a pretty great way to learn those begats, by the way. And Luke's introduction to his gospel provide beautiful examples of what we might call journalistic techniques to tell the true story of the gospel, which we do not by accident call the good news. In fact, it's worth pausing on the opening lines of the gospel of Luke. There, Luke writes this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. Theophilus, of course, meaning lover of truth, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. It's not hard to imagine a wise editor using those passages from Genesis and Luke and Revelation to give instructions to a young reporter. Go to the city council meeting, the Senate hearing, the football game, the scene of the accident. Show up. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Write down what you see. And when you get back, try to turn it into an orderly story, an orderly narrative so that your reader can see what you saw. This is journalism in action to tell the true story of the world. Of course, I tend to have a reformed, some might say a Kuyperian view that all work, if done for God's glory and honorably engaged, is a sacred vocation, whether it's a baker, a brewer, a barrister, or a broker. But as we have just seen, what we today call journalism is a craft with clear biblical precedent. 
Those of us who practice it today should do so boldly with the certain knowledge that this enterprise of naming the animals in the garden and speaking truth to power has a rich biblical basis. Now, I think it's also important that we summon our second witness, which is the witness of history. Uh, the emerging craft of journalism, for example, played a key role in the Reformation. We remember the Great Reformation of the 16th century primarily for its theologians and churchmen, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others, and so we should. But let us not forget that a certain German metalsmith named Johannes Gutenberg produced the first printed document, a Bible, in 1455. Without the printing press, the Reformation might not have occurred or might not have occurred in the way we know it. Luther himself reportedly said of the role of the printing press, printing is the ultimate gift of God and the greatest one. Historian Paul Johnson wrote that the smell of printer's ink was the incense of the Reformation. This development also birthed an explosion in literacy. Historian Rodney Stark said that when Gutenberg invented the printing press, only a few thousand Germans could read. By 1500, 400,000 Germans could read. And over the next 100 years, journalism exploded all across Europe. Some historians consider the first true newspaper to be a weekly in Strasbourg, uh, in 1605, but soon newspapers sprang up in Frankfurt, Berlin, and Hamburg. By 1650, 30 German cities had at least one active newspaper. In fact, journalism became so powerful that official churches and government, national government started pushing back on journalism, shutting down printers and destroying printing presses. In 1643, the British Parliament passed a law regulating printing, it required authors to have a license approved by the government before their work could be printed. Now, that law led to one of the great moments in the history of the free press. Just a year later, on November 23, 1644, John Milton published Areopagitica. The document takes its name from the Areopagus, the hill in Athens, Mars Hill, we know it as today, where the Apostle Paul gave one of his most famous speeches, which we can find in Acts chapter 17. Paul's speech is considered one of the great evangelistic sermons of all time, and it was that. But it's also important to remember that it was a defense of free speech as well. Paul delivered that speech because he was defending himself against charges of promoting foreign gods and strange teachings. It is for precisely these reasons that America's founding fathers memorialized free speech in the First Amendment of the Constitution. And it's also important to remember that this amendment sets out not just this freedom, but a total of five freedoms, including religious liberty. As the founding fathers themselves also noted, these five freedoms were in the First Amendment together because they depend upon each other. You can't have one without the other. So all of that history and all of that scripture takes me to this point. Never doubt that journalism, the proclamation of the news, be it good news or other kinds of news about the brokenness of the world and our institutions and ourselves can change the culture or for that matter, the entire known world. It has happened at least twice before 
in the first century, in the 16th century, and that's why I believe journalism can reform evangelicalism today. However, if journalists are to, especially Christian journalists, are going to be more than propagandist for Christian institutions, I think several things need to happen. And here are a few of my suggestions in closing. First of all, I think we need to get over our fear of bad news. In fact, we need to understand that bad news can be good news. The reason the gospel is good news is not because it makes us feel good. It is because it offers the truest, most authentic story of the world. And it is never more true than when it compels us to look at the brokenness of the world. The grace of God is cheapened by a sentimental, inauthentic, whitewashed, sanitized account of that brokenness. Number two, we need to remember that people and the truth matter more than institutions. In virtually every investigative story that I've covered, uh, when the scandal finally broke out into the open, we discovered that it had been known but covered up for years, in some cases even decades. That was the case at Canacook Camps, at Willow Creek, at Mars Hill, at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The logic was this, to deal with this scandal publicly would be to destroy the institution and the good work it is doing. However, we as Christians should always remember that the truth sets us free. It never doesn't set us free. We should also remember something that if you've had even a basic course in ethics, you should have learned that the end never justifies the means. This is something that amazingly the Christian church, the evangelical church, seems to have forgotten today, but I think that journalism can help us reform our understanding of that particular ethic. Thirdly, transparency and accountability are the instruments of truth-seeking and truth-telling. Transparency and accountability are the two essential non-negotiable ingredients when it comes to the restoration of the credibility of the evangelical church. Now, these two words, transparency and accountability, I will admit can and do mean a lot of things, some of which go beyond our conversation today. On the purely tactical and practical level, they mean that Christian nonprofits should release their Form 990s and other financial information to the public. There's a trend among Christian ministries to claim to be churches in order to receive exemption from this requirement. This practice is not new. Controversial and sometimes outright fraudulent organizations have been claiming the church exemption for years. It is a common practice, for example, among televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers. From 2008 to 2011, Senator Charles Grassley investigated six televangelists, Eddie Long, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, and Paula Kane. The investigation was necessary in part because their organizations were not transparent in their financial dealings. The organizations that they led spent lavish amounts of money on mansions, lifestyles, and private jets. Now, though, other organizations are following the terrible example of these prosperity gospel preachers. Some of these organizations are those that I would have told you five years ago were exemplars, ministries to set the standard. 
that were above reproach. Alas, I can no longer say that is true for organizations who now hide behind the church exemption as an excuse for a lack of transparency. Among the organizations that now claim church exemption in recent years include Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, the Navigators, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, Willow Creek Association, Gideon's International, Ethnos 360, formerly known as New Tribes Mission, Precept Ministries, Denison Ministries, Voice of the Martyrs, and of course, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. Many of these organizations have made these changes just in the last few years. At least two of the organizations that I just mentioned, Willow Creek and RZIM, have had major scandals that I'm sure many of you know about, and indeed RZIM is no longer in business today. So it's a fair question to ask, I think. Did the lack of transparency contribute to the scandals? I will tell you plainly that my answer to that question is yes. And that's why we at Ministry Watch think that this trend to hide behind the church exemption not to release your financial information is a very dangerous trend. These words, transparency and accountability, also mean that board members should be independent. They should not have financial or familial relationships with the organization they are governing. This lack of independence is a flaw that we saw at Mars Hill, at Canacook, and elsewhere. Who's going to ensure, though, that transparency and accountability exist? Who is going to keep watch to make sure that these organizations are doing the things that I just mentioned? In a fallen world, it is foolish to expect the ministries themselves to police themselves. The temptation is just too strong to look the other way when wrongdoing and irregularities occur. And the bigger and more powerful the institutions become, the greater the temptation to keep quiet becomes as well. As I mentioned earlier, we can't count on the Evangelical Council for financial accountability. The ECFA does good work, but it is not a watchdog organization. The membership is too small, and members pay dues. That means that it is not in the ECFA's financial interest to police its own members. So again, I ask, who? Who is going to lead to this revolution in transparency and accountability? It is precisely here that Christian journalists play, I think, a unique and vital role. It is journalism's mission to pursue the truth. It is the Christian journalist's mission to define the truth according to the principles of Scripture. For the Christian journalist, words matter. What we call things matter. Because we are children of the light, transparency matters. We have dozens of examples in Scripture of evil being exposed. They are not just descriptive, but prescriptive passages, I think, for us today. Exposing evil is a good, something, in fact, we are commanded to do. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them. And on that subject, as Christian journalists, we care not just about what is true, but also about what is good. The other side of that coin is that we are in a unique position to name evil, even evil in our midst. In a relativistic, postmodern world, this desire, this ability to name evil, to call it by its rightful name, is, I think, especially valuable. So in conclusion, um, please let me close with a word that I hope you will hear both as a challenge, but also as an encouragement. And that word is this, 
This calling on your life, journalism, is a high and sacred calling. Whether you are an independent journalist, whether you work for an organization and you're a storyteller, this storytelling, this truth-telling process is so vital. It is as old as the creation story, and it is made new and vital and essential by the current crisis in the evangelical church, which at its core is an inability to face the truth and tell the truth about itself and what is broken in the world. Christian journalists are uniquely qualified to answer this crisis. And it is my prayer that we will, in this moment, live up to the high calling that God has placed on our lives. You've been listening to a speech I recently gave at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Press Association in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The title of the speech is How Journalism Can Save evangelicalism. Before we go, a quick reminder that this program exists because of the generosity of people like you. We take no money from the ministries we cover. There's no advertising on our website. We are completely listener and reader funded. If you'd like to make a donation to Ministry Watch, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the Donate tab at the top of the page. And I'd like to remind you that if you make a donation during the month of April, we will send you, as our thank you gift, a copy of Randy Alcorn's classic book, Managing God's Money. We think this is a book that every Christian should have in his or her library. Hey, and if money is a little tight right now, listen, I get it. I've been there a time or two myself. So you can still help the program by just rating us on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the higher we rank with search engines, and that means other people can find us more easily. Rating us just takes a couple of seconds, and it doesn't cost you a dime. It's free, easy, and it's an important way that you can support the producer for today's program is Rich Russell, and we get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.